Hi, it's Brendan here, and I'm kicking off this podcast with a Christmas message. Please dig deep for Spiked this Christmas. Spiked is completely free, and it always will be, because we want anyone anywhere to be able to read our content and listen to our podcasts. If you support our pro-freedom, pro-democracy, decidedly anti-woke journalism, and you want it to reach as many people as possible, then consider making a Christmas donation today. Anything you can give is greatly appreciated. And if you sign up for a regular donation of £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year, you'll even get a gift in return. You can become a spiked supporter and enjoy a range of exclusive perks. So donate now by going to spiked-online.com slash donate. That's spiked-online.com slash donate. Trump was a perfect aesthetic encapsulation of white liberal elite angst about what the working class wanted. He gave liberals the sense of like, oh, our worst fears are true. And they totally missed what Trump was about, which was the hunger for economic populism and just the despair of the working class. The the number one predictor for whether a county would go for Trump was how many deaths of despair it saw from, from opioid addiction, from overdoses. And so this despairing working class, like they did see in him a tribune because he offended the people who had so much contempt for them. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Batia Ungar-Sagan. Batia is an American journalist and author. She works at the Opinion Desk at Newsweek. Prior to that, she was the opinion editor of Forward, the largest Jewish media outlet in the United States. She's written for a variety of publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and the New York Review of Books. She's the author of the book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. So, Batia, let's talk about your book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And I want to kick off by asking you about one issue in particular, maybe as a kind of case study that through which we can explore some of the themes that you bring up in your book. I want to talk to you about the Kyle Rittenhouse case, because Mm. that's been a huge global story. Even here in the UK, there was a huge amount of coverage, a huge amount of discussion And one of our newspapers, The Independent, rather infamously now referred to Kyle Rittenhouse's, um, the people he shot as, as black. And it was very interesting that they did that and they got a lot of flack for doing it because it is understandable that someone might come to that conclusion because of the way in which the, this story was covered by so much of the media. He was a white supremacist. This was an attack on at least a protest for black rights. And it was kind of shoved quite thoroughly into a pre-existing narrative in some way. So I wonder to what extent do you think the coverage of the Carl Rittenhouse story illustrates some of the points you've been making about the problem of wokeness kind of corrupting media objectivity? Yeah, it was such a great example. And I I feel like what the Independent did in calling his victims black, like most people didn't make that actual mistake, but that's because they didn't need to, right? The, The narrative, as you say, was so well oiled that they they could actually not make the actual mistake, right? That what the independent did was it said the quiet part out loud, right? Which was like this was an attack on the reigning ideology of the day on the left, right? Which is how um and the way that the uh, you know the mainstream media did that was they didn't quite go out of their way to call the victims black, but they left out for example that the three people who had attacked Kyle Rittenhouse, who he then shot, two of whom he killed, all had a lengthy rap sheet of attacking the vulnerable people in their lives, right? And you can imagine an alternative media story in which that was highlighted, right? In which we said, you know, it's not actually an accident that the three people he shot were all white, right? All people who had either punched or raped you know, vulnerable people in their lives, right? Um, so I completely agree with you. It was very much a narrative that the media created that they wanted to be the case. And then, of course, Kyle Rittenhouse himself went on Tucker Carlson and 
probably much to you know the audience, Fox News audience as well. He admitted that he was a supporter of yeah. Black Lives Matter, and you know he made this amazing point, which is really important that you know if he were a, a kid of color, if he were a black kid, a Latino kid, he probably wouldn't have gotten the justice that he got. And as a lefty, I think that's that's exactly the point that should be made. Not that a white kid shouldn't have justice, but that we should all be very deeply engaged in making sure that every American has access to the criminal justice system in the way that Kyle Rittenhouse did. So, okay, I'll probably ask you a bit more about the Rittenhouse story as we go along, um, because I think it is a fascinating snapshot of the kind of problems that you've been raising in relation to the media. But before we kick off, the, the subtitle to your book is How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. So I want to put you on the spot and ask you, what is your definition of wokeness? Because it's such a contentious term. I use it all the time. I know lots of people who use it very often as a shorthand to describe something that is a bit amorphous, not quite an ideology, but definitely palpable, a kind of a mix of identity politics and other forms of what I would consider post-left politics rather than actual left politics. So it's a mishmash of things and it can sometimes be the kind of the name we grab to to name something that is a bit difficult to pin down. But so how do you define wokeness? How do you see wokeness? And and let's take that as as our starting point for a discussion on on the role it plays in the media today. Absolutely. No, I love answering this question because I think it's really important. You know, the word woke started as black slang to refer to being aware of the ways in which state-sponsored racism still exists. And I obviously think that's really important. In fact, most Americans now think that that is really important. (laughs) There's now, for the first time in American history, huge consensus on the evils of mass incarceration and police brutality, the way these things impact Black and Latino Americans disproportionately. I mean, people don't know this, but Republicans have been at the forefront of criminal justice reforms for the last decade, right? You know, it's not woke to to care about criminal justice reform. President Trump wasn't being woke when he released 5,000 Black men from prison under the First Step Act, right? Like it's, you know, being that that's not how I'm using woke. And I am guilty of something that our culture has done right now, which is appropriated a term from black culture that was used to define something important. And now we use it as a pejorative. And so, yes, that is a criticism that I accept. However, it is also the case that there is a reigning ideology that is deeply harmful to the most vulnerable black and Latino Americans that is rooted in a view of race that has been embraced by very affluent white liberals that come straight out of the academy. And what was once a very radical, you know, fringe view of race has now become completely mainstreamed. My book is about how this happened through the media largely. And I think it's really important that we be able to criticize that, you know? So I I go back and forth on it. On the one hand, I think it's good to have a word that we're all using to talk about the same thing. But on the other hand, you know, I think it's much more important to debate the issues, right? Like I'm happy to debate defund the police independent of using the word woke if that those are the terms on which the people pushing defund the police will be willing to 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 debate it with me so i kind of go back and forth on the the usefulness of the word woke i do feel that the people saying you know you can't use the word woke would rather not have a debate about the issues at all and in a way like it, it, it reveals again the point of my book, which is that this is not about race, but about class, right? Like you, and you see a lot of this around critical race theory. You see people on the left saying, like, well, you don't even know what critical race theory is, right? Like these parents don't know what it is. It's a Harvard law, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and it is, it is that thing. But essentially, when we police the language we use to debate things, I do feel that in a way that's a very academic exercise and a way of saying to people who are less educated, you don't have a right to be in this conversation because you don't have my education. And unfortunately, a lot of journalists are extremely highly educated. (laughs) And so like, like that is a tactic that has a lot of power precisely for the reasons that I think the left has empowered itself at the expense of the working class, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I have Lots of questions I want to ask you about <laughs> class in particular. Because wait, I think wait, that's... I have to ask you something first. Yes. You have to, I think, I, this is so interesting to me. 
you have to find yourself as a libertarian Marxist. <laughs> and I, I, I'm pretty sure that I maybe am as well, but I, I, tell me what that means to you because I also struggle with how to define what it is I am. Like I would think it's socialism, but it's not. The socialists of today are terrible and I hate everything they stand for, <laughs> but I am a populist, but nobody knows what that way. What, what do you mean by that? What is libertarian Marxism? Well, it's funny you should ask that because, um, I've, I've, I haven't used that phrase for a long time, but that is what mm -hmm. I used to call myself. And I think what it means is that I'm a left winger who believes very, very strongly in freedom, especially freedom mm -hmm. of speech and general liberty. And the point I've often made in discussions I have with leftists in the British media, I often say, look, the left used to really care about freedom far yeah. more than the right. If you go back to the countercultural yeah. left of the 1960s and then even back further to Marx and Engels and Trotsky and others, a core argument of their writing was the importance of freedom, of liberating the individual from the burdens of an authoritarian society or the burdens of poverty and allowing that human potential in every person to flourish. There was always that very strong current in the left of freedom. So I often make the case that the, the left's relatively recent turn against freedom, by which I mean the Western left. Obviously, the Soviet left was never interested in freedom. <laughs> but the Western left's relatively recent turn against freedom is an abandonment of some of the founding principles mm. of what it meant to be a left winger, which meant trusting ordinary people to decide their own destinies, trusting mm. communities to work together through solidarity in order to improve their conditions. And so that's how I understood a kind of libertine left politics. But what we have today, which is the kind of thing you've been writing about and others have too, is a left that is very distrustful of ordinary people, especially working class people. The British left refers to them as gammon, you know, as the- What does that mean? The gammon is, it's, it's a comment on the kind of red skin that angry working uh, class men have when they're shouting uh, about Jeremy Corbyn or something else. Uh, so it's a very derogatory term for working people and a similar anti-working class snobbery has definitely crept into the American left too, yeah. uh, and especially yeah. the American media left, which you've written about a lot. So let's take that as a bit of a jumping off point. So I, I want to ask you the same question, I guess. How do you locate yourself politically, given the various realignments that are happening in politics and more working class voters shifting a bit to the right or experimenting with populism, while the left becomes colonized by the graduate classes and right. the upper middle classes and white liberals, essentially. Given all these various quite groundbreaking realignments that are taking place in politics, how do you locate yourself in the political universe at the moment? How, how would you define yourself or, or see yourself in relation to those other groups? I'm a left-wing populist, yeah. which means I have more in common with Josh Hawley than I do with AOC. Because I, and that's a weird, weird thing to say as a lefty. Um, but he's the guy who's out there pushing for 50% of all of American manufacturing to be, to have to take place in America. And she's the person out there. And as far as I can tell, every plank of her agenda is punishing the working class, you know? And so, I, <laughs> you know, and, and again, I, I actually agree with you about, you know, you call it freedom. I would call it autonomy, mm. the respect for autonomy that is uh, inherent in working class life that is anathema to highly educated um, liberal elites, you know, something that I think is really important. I'm religious. So it's like already, you know, <laughs> huge swaths of the <laughs> left um, think that I, you know, um, they're not really keen on religious liberty anymore. And, um, there, you know, there's, but there's a lot of ways in which I, I, I totally agree with you that there's, I, I wrote the, the, my book is about contempt, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a book about contempt. And how did the left under the guise of social justice, high on the smell of its own virtue, come to be punishing and sneering at and smearing the people who need us the most, which is the working class of all races? And it's so funny, like, you know, something that I think liberals really struggle with is they can't sympathize with the working class because they don't share their values. And so they think, well, obviously the thing to do with them is thus, you know, deplatform them. And I, it's the thing that I think is the point I try to make in the book is that, you know, the reason that we should care about platforming the concerns and the viewpoints of working class Americans is not because they need our pity or because they have our values. It's because, you know, a democracy demands 
tolerance for viewpoints that you disagree with and sharing power. And we're not doing that anymore. In fact, there has been, you know, they use race to justify consolidating power around, you know, the top 10%. And I think that that's, it's just really dangerous. So whatever that is, that's what I am, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I don't think that's a bad place to be at all. It's a very (laughs) curious position to be in. You just mentioned race there, and I wanted to kind of use that part of the discussion because you go into that in quite a lot of detail in your book, and your arguments on this are very convincing, which is, um, as you've just outlined, the use of race, the use of that kind of identitarian politics of race to consolidate a particular position in society for white liberals, for the new left, or however else we want to refer to it. And one of the points you make is that this is about the destructiveness of the current obsession with race. And so one of the points that is made by the woke, if we might as well call them that for the, for the, for this discussion (laughs) is this notion that America is a white supremacist country. It always has been. It probably always will be. It was born in the original sin of slavery and it's going to be stained by that for the rest of time. I mean, this is an argument that is not only coming from liberals in the United States, but it's really spread around the world. I mean, it was so striking. The Black Lives Matter movement was like an, it was almost like an imperial juggernaut, which spread across the whole globe in 2020. And it was so amazing to me how many local movements had to make their case through Black Lives Matter. So you had groups in Australia, groups in Germany and Belgium using that banner. It was, I I argued at the time that it was American capitalism's most successful export because it was just (laughs) branded everywhere in the world. So, so it's an impression Genius. of America that is now very widespread. And I wanted yeah. to ask you how you think that came, th- this contemporary notion of America as, uh, as a white supremacist state, how did that come about? And why do you think it's such a problematic argument that's being put forward? How did it come about? You mean that it's still a white, because yeah. obviously there were times yeah. when it was a, sure. as recently as, you know, the sixties. <laughs> so, um, I think what, what I noticed and part of the impetus for writing the book was a sort of the crossing of the tracks of racism and coverage of racism. So as racism and white supremacy in America has become, you know, totally decreased, obviously still exists, still have these areas, police brutality and mass incarceration, intergenerational poverty among the descendants of slaves in some communities, you know, to name a few that are really important. Um, but as, you know, tolerance for racism, justification for racism, um, people willing to justify people like the murderers of Ahmad Arbery in the public sphere, as those people have just disappeared into the margins, the obsession with race in the media and the mainstream liberal media has absolutely skyrocketed, right? So you have an X basically like as instances of racism, as our acceptance of racism has, you know, as our acceptance for, you know, interracial marriage, as our view of ourselves as a colorblind society, or that as being the sort of the fantasy to strive towards has, you know, really become the consensus view in America. The coverage of white supremacy, the instance of the word white supremacy in the mainstream liberal media has absolutely skyrocketed. And this is not, you know, just impressionistic. Obviously, we've all noticed it, but sociologists have really tracked this. And what they've tracked along with it is what they call the great awakening, which is, uh, you know, white liberals becoming more extreme in their views on race than black and Latino Americans who are much more socially conservative and even more conservative or more moderate in their views on race. So I think that that was something that, um, I think I wanted to solve. Like, what, where did a marketplace for an idea that's started in the academy, right? The idea that, um, we shouldn't be striving for a colorblind society because that is racism, right? Like that sort of classic postmodernist reversal, right? The thing you thought we were striving for <laughs> is actually the worst possible thing, right? Like, where did that view come from? The idea that, you know, all white people have white privilege that puts them above all people of color who are inherently oppressed and marginalized by the system, by the very DNA of America. And as you said, we'll never get out of that because you can't change your DNA, right? You can't evolve out of your DNA, right? Um, so that idea started in, in, in the academy, you know, sort of like with the postmodernist revolution and critical race theory, right? The application of the, you know, the Frankfurt School's view of a kind of 
Marxist view in a cultural sense, right? Like, it's so funny because people will often call critical race theory Marxist. And I'll always be like, the problem with critical race theory is an insufficiency of Marxism, right? <laughs> there's, no, there's no materialism in it. There's no class based, um, you know, yeah. dynamics. But, um, you know, that view that, that every interaction is about power not about right versus wrong, not about virtue, but about power, who has it, who doesn't have it. That's that's a kind of very academic worldview. And it got mainstreamed into American discourse through um, the media, which is increasingly populated by highly educated um, Americans, as opposed to the blue collar working class journalists of yore. And I think in Europe, this in England specifically, this is even more the case. Yeah. I mean, I think 92% of American journalists have a college degree. I think in Europe, it's something like 98%. And, and you guys, you all come from the top 2% of, 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 of the population. So it's sort of on steroids what we have here, but we're headed in that direction. And I think that Thomas Piketty has been really great at identifying, you know, cl that sort of class divide as being what's driving a lot of the um, right-wing populism and um, really the realignment that you alluded to earlier. So I think to me, what are the stakes of this obsession with white supremacy that does not actually describe reality? Well, first of all, I argue in my book that it's not about race, but about class. It's about the consolidation of one class's power. Um, and, and the stakes are incredibly high. I mean, first of all, you get people like Donald Trump, which is, you know, I don't think I see him the same way that most liberal journalists do, but um, certainly, you know, that's a big, a big thing that people will have to deal with, you know, things like Brexit, whether or not you think of these as huge disasters, they are the direct outgrowth of the contempt that the ruling class has for 90% of Americans. We're not even talking about like, you know, the bottom or whatever. Um, I also think it's, it's really dangerous for vulnerable communities when you have a desperate need like we do for police reform. And then you have a bunch of white affluent liberals in gated communities going out there and calling anyone who doesn't support defunding the police racist, you get murder spikes. We've literally a hundred black children were killed in 2020. And like that is a direct result of the way that we have a taboo uncovering crime, which is totally the result of wokeness. So, I mean, the stakes are very, very real. You know, I mean, I can't think of anything worse than like murdered children, right? And I'm not saying that like the media is directly responsible for that, but certainly it is indirectly responsible for that. And and just the further immiseration of the working class of all races. I mean, every liberal should care about this stuff and they should care about a worldview that is immiserating the very people that they believe or they think or they claim to want to represent when what they're actually doing is representing their own economic yeah. interests under the guise of, of this kind of social justice. That's a really fascinating point about the way in which they use the, the new politics of race to stack up their own class interests, to protect their own power, to protect their own privilege, essentially, because uh, and I find that a very convincing argument. But to an outside observer, it might seem counterintuitive because one of the things that white liberal journalists are very good at in particular is a kind of self-loathing, you know, um, it's, it, and, and it's very, it's a very complicated situation because on the one hand, they bash whiteness and they think whiteness is this terrible thing. And if you're born white, you're essentially born with an original sin of some kind. They talk about white privilege and the need to check your privilege. But it strikes me that in some ways, that is the very mechanism through which they preserve their class interests and their class power, as you describe it, because it means what they are doing all the time is positioning themselves as the special caste of people who understand society, who understand the complexity of race relations and who speak the right language. You know, you always, the lingua franca of the new elites is very important to learn about white privilege, checking privilege and people of color and, and um, BIPOC and all these other terms that have to be understood, have to be learned. And it becomes a kind of language amongst the elite. So just describe a little bit how you understand that process working, where it looks like they're batting for the oppressed in society because they talk about the problems facing black communities while, as you say, simultaneously exacerbating the problems through the arguments they're making. They present themselves as being on the side of the oppressed, but actually what they're doing is shoring up their own cultural power and their own cultural mm -hmm. influence over society as a whole. 
Yeah. I, I, somebody emailed me recently after reading my book and said, you know, in England, your accent will tell somebody roughly, you know, how much money <laughs> your father made and where, you know, within, you know, 40 miles, where you grew up, what kind of a school you went to. Like you have a way of telegraphing the class you went to just with how you speak. In America, we have woke words, right? <laughs> like that's how you telegraph, like, you, you know, how highly educated you are, right? We don't have, and it's so interesting. I mean, it must be so fascinating to come from a culture in, in Europe where, class is still very much something that is there and to see it developing in America, like a class structure developing in what used to consider itself or pride itself as a classless society. I think you and I probably differ on how intentional this is. Mm -hmm. As a former woke, I very much <laughs> think that the people who are in the grip of this mania, this moral panic about race do truly believe they're on the right side of history. But at the same time, it is so clear that they are shoring up not only their cultural power, but it's literally lining their pockets. And there are, you know, a host of examples like this of, of, you know, white liberals, affluent white liberals using the real pain of black Americans to withdraw from the concept of the common good to declare America as too racist to be in a body politic with, you know, and, but also really benefiting economically from it. And, you know, there's a bunch of examples of this, you know, I'll just give one immigration, mass immigration. So mass immigration has been tied to a decrease in of up to 40% of black wages, right? Which makes sense, right? When you import, you know, a whole class of low-skilled laborers, the people who are going to pay for that are the people who have not been allowed to ascend the economic ladder who are still doing, you know, low-skilled labor or the working class, you know, and yet liberals, so it used to be that the Democrats were the side of, you know, strong borders, right? Because we can't import a whole new working class What's going to happen to the jobs of our working class, right? They saw themselves as on the side of working class, you know, black Americans. And that was, you know, that from that position, that's where we create policy for. Whereas it was the Republicans who were, you know, let's open those borders, right? Because as, as somebody once put it to me, they know slave labor when they see it, right? Like, you know, that was like <laughs> totally a re Republican, you know, and up until 2015, Bernie Sanders was the one saying, you know, open borders is a Koch brothers proposal, right? There's been a total reversal on that to where Republicans are now the strong borders, you know, you know, um, anti-immigrant, we need to stand for working class jobs, right? Working class Americans. And the liberals are now, if you don't say... You know, if you still believe it should be a crime to cross into America illegally, which is, you know, essentially the only way you enforce a border, um, you know, you are a racist, right? So what they did was they took the word that was supposed to refer to the ways in which we have and continue to abandon the descendants of slaves, you know, racism, and they applied it to a policy that literally has stolen 50 up to 40% of the wages of that very community that we're supposed to be on the side of in the name of fighting racism. Now, you have to ask yourself, like, how did that happen? I honestly believe when they look at immigrants flooding the border, their heart goes out to them. At the same time, even as it has, you know, resulted in up to 40% decrease in black wages, it is undeniable that affluent white liberals are the ones who are benefiting economically from mass immigration. Yeah. They are the ones where you have both partners, you know, husband and wife working very demanding jobs and they need nannies to look after their children. You know, they have, you know, all of the domestic labor in America is in those, you know, those sectors of society. They are the people who need, you know, cheap landscaping around their homes. They are the people who want to go out to a restaurant and they don't want to pay $700. They want a gorgeous bottle of wine and they want to pay $15 for it. Like they are the, they have literally lined their pockets with the proceeds, with the, the rise in GDP that, that exists due to mass immigration, right? But that GDP has gone to a very specific sector of the population. So they use the language of race to immiserate working class black Americans under the banner of social justice. I mean, that is the, that's the model, right? And it's, you, there's so many areas where you can see this, where every plank that comes up, it's like the same model, you know, student loan forgiveness of up to $50,000, like asking, you know, the Democrats used to be the party of linemen and factory workers. And now they're asking linemen and factory workers to pay off the student loans <laughs> of accountants and dentists and lawyers. I mean, it's, and you can't, but it's, I, I truly believe that they, it, the two go hand in hand. Like they truly feel for these, you know, populations, and they truly also are benefiting economically from using a language of race to describe them while also abandoning the people in America who need us the most. Hi, it's Fraser here, and I produce the Brendan O'Neill Show. 
Just in relation to the kind of self-interest that gets disguised as social justice or the kind of the preservation of an upper class interest under the uh, using woke language, using social justice language. One of the things you talk about in your book and you've mentioned now is the extent to which journalism has become a profession of upper class, upper middle class. Middle class means different things in the US and the UK. In in the US, middle class kind of means working class, whereas in the UK, it means... (laughs) upper middle class. So right. we'll go with upper middle class as a kind of uh, a useful phrase. Um, but journalism in the US, and as you say, also in the UK has become increasingly the preserve of well-educated, often well-off people. And you talk in your book about how one of the things about identity politics or wokeness is that it allows these incredibly privileged journalists to feel good about themselves and to, and it allows them to convince themselves that they are still speaking truth to power. So you have this extraordinary situation where, as you've just outlined, they benefit enormously from some of the policies that they're pushing. They benefit economically. They benefit in a cultural moral sense as well. They are clearly part of a new form of establishment thinking. They're clearly part of a new elite language and elite ideology. And yet they really do. And this is where I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. They do genuinely feel that they're speaking truth to power, that they are the great radical journalists of our time. So how have they allowed themselves to get into that kind of position where they have these well-paid jobs? They're incredibly influential (laughs) in the cultural sphere and in public discussion. They are clearly very alienated from working class communities. And yet they've managed to convince themselves that they are at the kind of pinpoint of, of, of radical thinking. I think it's a big displacement exercise. You know, we, any journalist who's thinking honestly should be feeling immense amounts of economic guilt. But economic guilt, unfortunately, is something you can do something about. And racial guilt is something you can do nothing about. Mm. And so they picked... They picked racial guilt. I do think Trump sort of amped it up, but, and again, it's chicken and egg. Like, um, Trump was such a perfect encapsulation of working class culture in a way. He was a working class person's fantasy of what a rich person would do with their wealth, right? You would obviously get a golden toilet and buy a model wife and like, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, the spray tan and the hair and the, he was what liberals' worst nightmares of what a working class person would do with money was come <laughs> to life, right? He rejected all of their mores. He, he ate those overcooked steaks with, with ketchup on them, or he didn't eat them, but he knew that he should say he did, right? He was sort of like a, <laughs> he was, he was a perfect aesthetic encapsulation of white liberal elite angst about what the working class wanted. And, you know, I have to tell you, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of Trump voter supporters, people who really, really, really like him. And only one of them ever did not say to me some version of, I wish he wouldn't tweet. It's so undignified. Mm -hmm. The brawling, the racist comments. I wish he would just shut up and govern because I love what he's doing. I love what my bank account looks like, but it's so undignified. It's so, and the only person who ever told me, no, no, I like it. I'm in it for the brawling was a black guy in Georgia, you know, who just thought it was great (laughs) that he just, you know, he said what he thought, but they, the idea that they were in it for the, for the, all of that sort of gross commentary, that's just, that was just wrong. I mean, they weren't, but the media, of course, couldn't get enough of it. They just couldn't get enough of it. So I think in a way, he gave liberals the sense of like, oh, our worst fears are true. Um, and they totally missed what Trump was about, which was the hunger for economic populism among working class conservatives and the, the, the deaths of despair. I mean, just the despair of the working class, the, the number one one predictor for whether a county would go for Trump was how many deaths of despair it saw from from opioid addiction, from overdoses, from alcoholism, or just from suicide. And so this despairing working class, like they did see in him a tribune because he offended the people who had so much contempt for them. And it's so funny because in America, you know, there's this view that there's the right and the left and the right thinks that the left has total contempt for them and looks down on them. And the left thinks that the right is totally racist. And one of those things is actually true. (laughs) And it's not that the right is racist. (laughs) Absolutely. I want to talk to you a little bit about the the interplay between wokeness and capitalism or Mm. or the question of why corporations in particular seem to warm very much to woke politics and especially to the politics of 
racial identity. If you think of, uh, you know, those authors of, of books about white fragility and the new racism and all those kinds of things who are constantly being invited into big corporations, I guess, to re-educate the workforce or to inculcate <laughs> them with the values of yeah. the elite. Um, and you have this great example that you talk about where the New York Times fashion magazine once had Angela Davis on the front cover and a Cartier watch <laughs> on the back cover. And you argue that it's essentially two sides of the same coin. You know, you have this kind of capitalized wokeness, this kind of uh, monetized wokeness in many ways, uh, alongside adverts for old forms of incredibly privileged goods and products. So how do you see the relationship between wokeness and capitalism? Do you think capitalism has bought into wokeness, that it see that it recognises that it's not actually a threat to its power in the way that traditional working class politics might have been in terms of trade unions and communities and solidarity? Is it that capitalism recognises that wokeness is not a threat or does it does it actively see wokeness as something that could be beneficial in terms of allowing the capitalist elites themselves to uh, create a new sense of moral authority and moral superiority. It's so funny because when I speak to students, invariably one of them will say to me, um, you know, I'll like describe my book or whatever. And they'll always say like, wait, but aren't you just describing capitalism? Like a market was created for something. And it's, I never know what to say to that because in a way, of course, like the New York Times is a corporation and they mm. have every right to, to pursue, you know, the bottom dollar that their readership is willing to give them. Um, I would say that, um, what we have today is with the news media, there really is so you used to have, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR and the Atlantic and the New Republic and CNN and MSNBC, and they would each be going for a different sector of Amer the American population, right? Each of them would have, you know, their audience that they were looking for and um, that they were catering to. And now they are all catering to the same 6% of Americans who call themselves progressives, who live in, you know... 30 zip codes in America and like make above, you know, a certain, you know, $150,000 per person. And, you know, it's like that they're all going for the same seven, eight million people. So that that's what we're seeing here. And it's those people who are the loudest on Twitter, you know, who have the most time to spend tweeting, who will punish corporations for not doing the right thing. So they'll punish corporations for being in Georgia um, for enacting, you know, some piece of legislation, but they couldn't care less about the Uyghurs in China, you know, don't, you know, totally fine. You don't see their corporations bending the knee to China, no problem, even though China's like genocidal. But if, you know, but they want to see their corporations punishing Republicans. So that, I think that's really what you're seeing is it's not necessarily capitalism, but it's the way that the internet has made it easy to cater to increasingly smaller, increasingly more affluent subsets of the consumer public. So it, you know, why does it make more sense for the New York Times to cater to six million progressive, affluent elites living on the Upper West Side and San Francisco as opposed to 70% of Americans, you know, in the middle? Well, it does make more sense, which we know because they're doing it and they're making a lot of money off of it, right? So I think that the, because the internet makes it so easy to do that, to micro target your audiences, you're seeing corporations sort of building their marketing around that. And so I'm not sure that like, you know, like the book starts with a, a different kind of capitalism, right? A, 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 the capitalism that led to, you know, the penny press and the mass circulation of these papers to the poor and the working classes. They got rich too doing that, you know, talking to working class people like they exist and they're real and they're worthy of dignity. And nobody's doing that today in the media, except talk radio, uh, which does that really well. Okay, I want to talk to you about the consequences of, of what you're describing and the consequences of what you've just described there, which is this new internet enabled drive to to appeal to niche audiences. And one of the consequences is an undermining of journalistic integrity, because what it increasingly means is that journalists will come at an issue in a way that they think will appeal to the niche audience that they're talking to, rather than in a way that is more objective, more neutral, more concerned with getting to the to the bottom of the story. A, a good example of this, which you've uh, commented on, is the the story of Russia rigging the 2016 election. And again, this is another American news story that became global. I mean, we talked about it a lot in the UK. I talked about it on TV in the UK. And <laughs> there were people trying to work out 
what the hell was going on. There were some sections of the commentary in the in the in Britain who said, "Oh well, of course Russia did this. They're always doing terrible things like that." And there were other sides. I was among them who were thinking, "Actually, this demonstrates that the liberal media in the U.S. has." possibly lost the plot and is believing in things that are not true. Wait, hold on. You knew that from the beginning, like you were never taken in by that. That's some real cred. Well, the reason I was suspicious from the very beginning is, is because the exact same thing was being said about the vote for Brexit in the UK, ah, uh-huh. that it was all down to Russia. And I just thought, hold on, Russia is not a not very rich country that isn't even really <laughs> capable of running its own affairs very well. It's hardly going to be running the United States and Britain, you know, secretly through the internet. So I was skeptical from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Good but for I you. Wonder, um, <laughs> could you just outline a little bit, well, on that story in particular, why you think those kinds of um, claims have so much traction and what you think these kinds of stories and reports tell us about the way in which wokeness has impaired journalistic integrity Mm. more broadly? I think humans have an unlimited desire to see their opponents rendered in the worst possible light, (laughs) you know, like, because um, we have an unlimited desire to see ourselves as virtuous and brilliant and, uh, you know, ahead of the game and on the side of the right and the virtuous. So I think, the Russiagate conspiracy theory just confirmed what liberal elites really wanted to be true, which was not only did everyone who vote for Trump do so out of racism, and not only did they do so because they were terrible people, but they did so because they were so stupid that they were taken in by these, you know, um, Facebook posts like Jesus endorses Donald Trump or whatever it was, you know? And it's so funny because they, the, the second largest, most targeted uh, population was black Americans. And you saw a lot less of that because of course we're much less willing to say that about black Americans. But yeah. the thing that was missing from all of the stories, which I, I remember noticing this like early on was any proof that anyone had changed their vote as a result of some piece of Russian disinformation. Because aside from being able to show that you changed your vote, you know, a million engagements is not that much. It's just like people posting things they already think, you know, or like trolling or whatever it is. And there was never any proof of that. But it was just, it it, it was exactly like the Steele dossier. It was like too delicious to fact check. You know, it confirmed every single one of the beliefs of the extremely affluent, highly educated journalistic class who was, you know, horrified to find out that the Americans that they had spent the last 30 years sneering at and abandoning and sending their jobs Mm -hmm. to China and Mexico voted, you know, and it was like, it was amazing because they then spent the next four years talking about how undemocratic the process had been, do you know that 66% of Democrats believed that the Russians had tampered with the voting tallies? So very similar to now the stop yeah. the steal and all the Republicans who don't believe that, um, Trump, that Trump lost the election. So I think it was just, it was very, and it just shows you like the, Coming back to Kyle Rittenhouse, coming back to all of these things that fall into that um, narrative, you know, you have to ask yourself, why do they want to believe that their fellow Americans are racist, white supremacists? Why do they want to believe that? Like, they're pushing that with every fiber of their being. You see Joy Reid just like licking her chops every time she's like getting ready to cast someone else as a white supremacist. And why? What is in it for them? You know, these millionaires on CNN and MSNBC sitting they're sneering at people who are poor, who are literally committing suicide because they have nothing and they don't see a place for themselves in America anymore. And then they have to turn on their TV and hear themselves smeared by millionaires, right? What is in mm. it for them like to, to want to see the world that way? That's really the question that I was trying to answer. Don't miss my special live podcast recording with David Starkey on Tuesday, the 14th of December. David and I will be on Zoom talking about the history wars, green hysteria, the tyranny of woke, and much more. Tickets cost just £5, and they're now on sale to everyone. You can book yours by going to spiked-online.com slash events. Or if you're a Spike supporter, you can sign up for free. Just go to the Spiked website, log into the supporters hub, and you can register with one click. If you're not yet a Spike supporter, why not sign up today and claim your free ticket for me and David Starkey by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters.
I think the point you make about Russia Gate and and other stories really revealing a view of working class people as stupid is actually very important. And we had yeah. a very similar thing during the Brexit discussion in the UK. This notion that people didn't know what they were voting for. Russia obviously got at them through all these memes on Facebook and Twitter and somewhere else. And it was all driven, I think, by this notion that these people are so gullible and so brainwashable. Unlike us, you know, we're much more uh, politically and intellectually sensitive, um, you know, and, and that's obviously the problem. So I think a lot of it does stem from almost a form of class hatred. Completely, completely. And I think it goes even deeper, though. You know, this, this, I, when I first started writing my book, I was calling it What's the Matter with Liberals? Because it was, it's very much a response to Thomas Frank's 2004 book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Which asked, you know, why the white working class was voting, quote unquote, against its economic interests, right? Which is such an insulting and ridiculous question. And the answer that he came up with was even more insulting and ridiculous, which was that they had all been brainwashed by, you know, <laughs> conservative media, you know, which really begs the question, well, okay, what could possibly be so, you know, how could they have been so brainwashed that they would abandon their economic interests, right? Yeah. It only asks, the begs the question again. He then wrote a second book, which was excellent, called Listen Liberal, yeah. in which he discovered that the Democrats had also abandoned the working yeah. class. But of course, that didn't spend 18 weeks on the bestseller yeah. list because it didn't confirm what liberals already wanted to believe. And the truth of the matter is, is that... I actually don't see the Democrats as pushing the economic interests of the lower classes. And that's because there actually is a tension between what they view as, you know, the right way to do that and a pro working class agenda. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the Democrats are pushing essentially, um, you know, an expanded welfare state. That's what they, you know, up into and including, let's say, universal basic income where they will essentially pay people not to work, right? Because the idea is that it's very Silicon Valley feudalistic ideal, right? Like there's not yeah. going to be work for them. So we'll just pay them to exist. And that is not a pro working class agenda. No. Working no. class Americans want jobs with dignity. They want to be able to support their families on a single income, like all these things that used to be left-wing propositions. You know, they don't want an expanded welfare state, which they see as coming basically, essentially at their expense. And so when you look at something like Build Back Better, which is supposed to be this like, you know, great, you know, reinvigoration of the middle class and the working class in America, and not only does it include, you know, salt deductions, which are essentially tax cuts for wealthy liberals, right? Which is the second most expensive agenda item in the entire thing. It includes all kinds of, you know, climate extremist um, notions that no Republican will ever get on board on, but that now, you know, you see squad members calling you racist if you oppose them, or it's white supremacists to oppose climate extremism, you know, as well as, you know, expanded welfare state things that are just not they are not actually a pro-working class agenda. So what you have in America is this fiction of a debate about economics. You have, you know, the right pushing this trickle-down nonsense that doesn't work and that immiserates the working class, but you have the left not actually proposing anything else. And I'll just end with this. It's like, what was funny about AOC wearing this tax the rich dress of, as though it were some sort of revolutionary act was that Rich liberals love paying taxes, yeah. <laughs> you know? They're so rich. They are so above the working <laughs> class that they have no problem paying more taxes. You know, I'm not even talking about the billionaires in Silicon Valley who, you know, they're like, yeah, tax, ta taxes as much as you want. It'll never, it'll never, we'll never feel it, right? But even upper class, upper middle mm. class liberals, they love the idea of paying more in taxes because it alleviates the economic guilt that they should be feeling. What they don't want is an autonomous working class yeah. that can vote for people that they don't like. They want the working class to live at their beneficence the way they want the poor, the way that the poor does. What they want to see is an expanded poor who don't work at all and everyone else go to college so that they'll become good liberals. <laughs> I couldn't agree more on, on those points, especially on UBI. I find UBI to be such an extraordinarily chilling idea, essentially putting putting working people out to pasture and, and making them useless so that us better people can get on with organizing society and being productive. Totally. And in fact, one of the most, and it's, it's just as pronounced a problem here in the UK, one of the most 
controversial pieces I wrote here or what proved to be controversial was an essay I wrote for the Daily Mail here about the fact that working class communities are not big fans of welfareism because they recognize it as an encroachment on their ability to do dignified work and through that process to become autonomous individuals and families and communities. So I think the, the fact that welfareism tends to be something that well-off white liberals are interested in more than working communities is very interesting Uh, okay sadly we're fast running out of time so i've got Mm. two more questions i want to ask you one specific one and then one broad one so i want to this is far too big an issue for me to ask you this question at this late stage in the discussion but we'll try anyway i want to ask you about the woke media's treatment of the issue of israel because this is something that you've written about. This is something yes. I've also written about. It's it's a problem, I think, in the US and the UK, this reduction of an incredibly complex situation to a black and white binary position in which Israel is evil incarnate and possibly the most evil country in the whole world, <laughs> and the Palestinians are the most oppressed people who ever existed, and in fact very similar to the people of the Warsaw Ghetto. You know, that kind of comparison (laughs) is often made, which I think is anti-Semitic. So how much do you think that is an example of the kind of thing you're talking about, where when the woke media is rushing to impose its moral narrative on every issue, even something as complicated as tensions in the Middle East come to be turned into a kind of morality tale? How come you can see that? Well, you know, there's quite a few journalists in the UK who who kind of put their heads above the parapet on this issue and are very sceptical of the way in which the mainstream media presents this issue. And also in the UK, we've had the problem of left-wing anti-Semitism over the past few years, which has become increasingly pronounced. And that, that I think, has energised a few commentators to ask uh-huh. questions about the hostility towards Israel and the hostility towards Zionism and what might be underpinning those kinds of political views. Because I feel, I, I'll be honest, I'm feeling like epidural levels of relief hearing <laughs> you describe something that often, very, very often, you know, people who are even in the populist left, like I am in America, they can't see this. Like this yeah. is the one area where they just can't see it. Um, like they can't see how disgusting it is to compare Dr. King's nonviolent movement to grant black Americans freedom and dignity and equality from a white supremacist country that would deny it to them solely based on their race. They can't see how disgusting it is to compare that to a movement that included the second intifada that resulted in the murder of 700 civilians on purpose, like the bloody murder. Like, Even if you support whatever you think, Mm -hmm. how dare you besmirch the struggle for equality for Black Americans with a violent movement, it, it's like the, those are in no way comparable. And, and the funny thing is, is most Black Americans know that. I mean, that, you know, there's, I think a big difference between America and England is that our working class has no history of, of, of anti-Semitism. There's just no buy-in. Like the squad stands alone. It's just pure Brahmin leftism. And unlike Jeremy Corbyn, there's just no echo back from the working class. Like there's really, they, they are speaking to affluent white liberals. So I, I feel much more hopeful. Like what, I don't feel, you know, a lot, there's a lot of, um, you know, worry here, you know, among the Jewish community. Like we're, we're headed in the direction of the UK where it's, be, it's very chic to, to, you know, hate on Jews publicly. Uh, I don't see that happening at all. I think it's very circumscribed, but yeah, I guess to, to your question, um, yeah, it's just the, you know, anti-Zionism is just wokeness, Middle East edition. It's not anti-Semitic so much as it is just very, very stupid and wrong and ahistoric. And, you know, I, I think it's it's morally wrong to demand that Palestinians be Zionists to avoid being called bigots. So so I don't think anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitic because we must allow Palestinians to say, I'm not Zionist without being labeled bigots, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Israel came at their expense. They're allowed to not want Israel to exist, right? And if, if we can accept that, I mean, it's a very Talmudic argument, right? If we can accept that a Palestinian can be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic, we can accept that a, you know, a non-Palestinian can as well. But um, I think it's just, you know, the idea that 
there is exactly like you said, some sort of, you know, moral binary here where the powerless, the people with less, you know, the Palestinians have no power and no agency and Israel has all the power, all the agency and thus is evil and the Palestinians are purely virtuous and Hamas is on the side of virtue because it has less power than Israel. That's where you, that's where your brain on wokeness, you know, it's just this, it's totally amoral and just despicable. And it's like, it's so rare to hear somebody, <laughs> you know, um, because one feels very alone at this moment in, in this milieu, because it's so um, hard for people to see that because of course, Israel is committing civil rights abuses against the Palestinians. And so, and Israel does have more power, right? And as a lefty, that means it does have more responsibility, right? So it's like, you know, it's very hard to be in that position where, you know, I want to be on the side criticizing Israel and holding it to account. But because the side doing that is so ridiculous and extreme, you know, it's, it, you know, basically anti-Zionism is the defund the police yeah. of the Middle East. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's the kind of worldview that because it is never going to happen and it, it would lead to so much more bloodshed, right? It, that it, it's just ends up making things even worse. You know, Israel has three different problems with three different populations of Palestinians. There's the Palestinian citizens of Israel who live in Israel and have only 95% of the rights of Jewish Israelis. That's a problem, you know? Then there's the West Bank. It's a military occupation where Palestinians have no civil rights. That's a problem. And then there's, you know, the punishing blockade of Gaza where every young person has no future. That's a problem. In all of these problems, Palestinians have some level of agency and some level of power. And Israel has more agency and more power and more responsibility. Yes. But when you say, I'm going to be an anti-Zionist, Israel doesn't have the right to exist. You conflate three different problems to such an extent where the only solution you'll be happy with is the one that will never, ever happen because Israel's not going anywhere. Right. So it's just, it's more virtue signaling. And it's, it's, uh, I, I really appreciate the way that you, you put it. The problem in the UK is actually similar to how you've described it in the US, which is that the new anti-Semitism or the anti-Zionism that does sometimes creep into something far more questionable um, yeah. is much more pronounced amongst upper middle class liberals, uh, liberals in quotation marks, rather than amongst the working classes. And and one of the great things that happened in the UK, obviously, in 2019, was that working class voters in very large numbers uh, rejected Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party yeah. for, for various reasons. And, and yeah. that was a very refreshing thing to see. Okay, my, my last question for you is on the issue of democracy. And just want to ask you how you think democracy can get through this moment. Because one of the points you make in your book is that democracy doesn't do very well or certainly can't thrive and flourish when power and influence is concentrated in so few hands as it currently is. And you also make the point that it's concentrated in that way in some ways, thanks to journalists and the role that they have played yes. in pushing these narratives, pushing these ideas. So what do you think we can do to make the case for democracy, to make the case for a mass involvement in politics, including the concerns of working class communities or predominantly the concerns of working class communities, because they are the majority in society, and undercut the elite ideologies that are coming from the media and other sections of society? Whew, an easy one, <laughs> an easy one for the end, right? <laughs> Okay, I hate to say this, but I think there's sort of two ways to read the Trump phenomenon. You know, was Trump the sort of last gasp of the dying working class or was he sort of, um, you know, a sign of like working class reinvestment in politics? I did not vote for him, but I was happy to see the people who've been forgotten organize and be enthusiastic, even though the person they were enthusiastic for, I don't think he was, you know, worthy of their um, support from an ethical point of view, although from an economic point of view, he did a lot of what Bernie Sanders had promised he was going to do in 2015. So that was pretty good. Um, so I, I think that there is like a sort of almost Pollyannish way to see the political polarization as sort of reinvestment in the process, um, you know, people getting energized for certain politicians. There's also a mass boycott of the news going on, which I think is good. I think it means people have to go out into their communities to find the news and to find out what's happening and they, and um, a kind of rejection of the nationalization of the news. I, I, I'm not a democracy alarmist from a literal point of view. Like I, I think Trump actually did want to 
do away with many of the democratic norms we have and failed spectacularly because they, they really put up a good show <laughs> better than I would have predicted. Um, so I think from that, you know, more literal point of view, you know, things are holding strong. It's from the sort of more symbolic and cultural point of view that we have really descended into a neo-feudalism or an oligarchy. And I think that the results of that, sort of like what Michael Schellenberger said on your show last week or two weeks ago, that you're seeing the results play out um, in terms of, you know, the defund the police movement, even though it wasn't instituted, the the crime rise that that showed up in, in its wake is pushing Black and Latino voters to the center, if not to the right. Um, and I think that that is the ways in which the Biden administration and the Democrats more generally are still high on the COVID hysteria when it's clear that most Americans are over it. The, you know, these sorts of things are really big tells that a lot of populations that we thought were mainstays of one party, the other are really in play. And I think that's a really good thing. I mean, the Trump getting minority voters was, is a good thing for democracy because it means Democrats will have to fight for them. And that's what I want to see. So I, I feel, I feel pretty hopeful. I mean, uh, <laughs> I feel like things could, things could turn around and things maybe are turning around. And I, I do get a lot of hope from the, the big mass boycott of the media. I think Americans, the polarization that they're seeing on their TVs, they know that that doesn't exist in their communities. So I think America will, will rise again. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.